Listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It's been six months since fuel was found in our drinking water, forcing thousands of families living in military housing to vacate into hotel rooms just before the holiday season. Those families have since returned home and their water systems have been flushed and are continuing to be monitored. The Navy now has the results of a third-party report on the process of defueling the underground storage facility, although it has yet to share it publicly. On Friday, the governor issued a new emergency order that the military has now said it will not appeal. This morning, we had an opportunity to talk to the state's deputy environmental director, Kathleen Ho, about the progress being made and to get a preview of a key meeting with the Navy, the EPA, and city and state officials, which is set for Friday. Here's Ho talking about where we go from here. So what we wanted to do in this emergency order is to really bring everything up to date and so that we could ensure that we set expectations to safely defuel and close the facility. That order also specifically says that the Navy has to issue the report to DOH. Yes. You know, there's three significant dates The first is that on May 13th, we anticipate that the Navy will give us the the contractor's assessment of the facility regarding operations. And then the second date is on June 30th. We expect an implementation schedule for defueling. And finally, on November 1st, we expect a plan um, to permanently close the facility. We're having the um, Fuel Tank Advisory Committee meeting on Friday, and, you know, there's lots to talk about since the last time we met was in October. We intend to bring everybody up to speed on what's, what's been going on since October. As far as any legal wrangling on the contested case hearing, what's the status of that? So as far as the emergency orders, the Navy is not contesting those proceedings. The Navy also has withdrawn its complaints in both federal court and state court. And the only issue I believe that's remaining is the the permitting of the tanks. However, the Navy has also withdrawn its application to obtain a permit from the Department of Health to operate the tanks. What else can you tell us about the update of the cleanup? Because it's been a while since we were all out there for a tour. I think some lawmakers have asked to go in uh, and for another briefing, but I don't know if that if that has even happened. So what's the latest on the uh, contamination that's in the aquifer? We are continuing to monitor the movement, if any, of the contamination in the aquifer. The long-term monitoring plan for the drinking water and investigation is ongoing at the residences. And we are also removing water from the aquifer by way of the granulated activated system that is being then deposited into the Halava stream. So we're still we're still doing our investigation on um, the, the movement and cleanup of the aquifer. 
Do you know if the Navy has made any progress in trying to figure out if some of that water that is going into the stream can be used on, you know, landscaping and that kind of thing? We're in discussions with the Navy and others, other stakeholders on how we could best reuse that water. In your assessment, is the Navy doing enough to conserve? I mean, it did share with us what it's trying to do, you know, changing the shower heads and the irrigation of the landscaping, as well as shutting down the car washes. I don't have a feel for whether they're doing enough, although I, I would encourage everyone to adhere to the Board of Water Supplies briefings on conservation of water as we head into the summer months. I did see just this week that the Board of Water Supply has put in a public notice about the exploratory wells. Uh, yeah, I was made aware of that. And, you know, again, I would encourage all your listeners to adhere to the directives of the Board of Water Supply on conservation. And, you know, the military has in their um, monitoring system picked up evidence of you know, lead in isolated buildings. And I know the Department of Health, I think, in, in conjunction with the DOE, is doing a survey of of the schools and, and whether any lead is turning up in those facilities in our public schools. Correct. The Department of Health is actively working with the department, was and is working with the Department of, of Education to do an investigation on their fixtures to ensure that uh, no lead is being used by the consumer. The Department of Health is continuing to um, aggressively monitor to ensure that the Navy is complying with our order and that we believe that this order, the order that we just issued, is a, a good step towards protecting the people of the state of Hawaii and our aquifer. Is the military allowing you folks to just go in and assess things? I am not planning on going to the facility at this point. I've been there in the past. I've done, I've done four tours of the facility. I, I don't have any current plans of going there, but I will regularly discuss the cleanup with my staff and the Navy. That was uh, the Health Department's Kathleen Ho, Deputy Director of in the Environmental Health Division. She was talking about the latest emergency order issued by the governor last week, Friday. Ho says a key meeting of the Red Hill Advisory Committee will be held this Friday. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Among the many invasive social insects that have found a home in our islands is the western yellow jacket. The first reported sighting was on Kauai in 1919. However, it wasn't until the late 1970s, after an aggressive version of the species was, was introduced, that the negative impacts of these creatures became apparent. Adult wasps, 
uh, mostly feed on nectar, but they will also collect protein-rich food to feed their brood. In 2006, researchers studied populations at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and Haleakala National Park. They found that yellow jackets killed and scavenged prey that included tree lice, geckos, and shearwaters. These wasps typically have a short lifespan because of winter weather, but with our temperate climate here in the islands, Hawaii yellow jackets are a little different than their American cousins. For today's quiz, can you tell us how a nest in Hawaii differs from those on the mainland? Call 808-941-3689 here on Oahu or 877-941-3689 for the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nawit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NawitHawaii.com. recent posting of a new for sale listing is raising some eyebrows. For that, HBR's Kuve Hiraishi takes us to the Big Island's Pololu Valley. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this land that we're, we're talking about is basically at the end of Akonipule Highway in North Kohala. So for anyone who's ventured off uh, to Kohala and, and ended up at the end at the lookout uh, overlooking Pololu Valley, uh, this listing is for a 42-acre parcel near the top of that lookout, known as the Mule Station, and then about two and a half uh, acres along the beach uh, in the valley. So the private landowner, known as uh, Shirdi Kohala Corporation, listed these two parcels maybe about two months ago uh, for $25 million dollars. For those who oppose the sale are, are sort of worried about potential development uh, for whoever does end up buying these um, these parcels and, and the potential impact that could have on local residents. So from um, in speaking with local uh, residents that we've uh, seen there at the lookout, you know, Pololu Valley visits are part of growing up in Kohala. Local families often park at the lookout and make that 15-minute trek uh, down into the valley for fishing, to enjoy the beach, or just to get away uh, from the hustle and bustle of town. The the Pololu Valley lookout in particular uh, has become quite congested in recent years, both by residents and and, uh, especially visitors. And so any development could uh, put a strain on local resources and sort of disrupt, or there's a worry that it might disrupt the connection longtime families have to this this place. Uh, and that's what's worrying new Lee residents and Kohala High School teacher Aloha Patau. He's part of a group of concerned residents who've organized the Pol- uh, Protect Pololu Project. 
and that's in response to real estate listings like the one you just mentioned uh, in the area over the years. Uh, here's Patel. It's hard, and it's it's hard to accept. It's hard to swallow that idea that a place that is so open and so like beautiful as is naturally, organically, however you want to put it, is potentially be, going to become someone else's backyard. And for an amount like that, it just is like it's crazy to think that that's a possibility. It's kind of disheartening to know that someone wants to sell this piece of land to someone who can afford it, knowing that the people who love it in their heart can't afford that. And, and Kuvehi, uh, this land, what you know, how is it zoned? Is it conservation land? Uh, some of it's uh, ag, and then uh, down in, yeah, the beach, <clears throat> the beach parcel is in an open area uh, that's also uh, conservation nearby. So, so Shorty Kohala, this isn't the first time uh, we've seen sales uh, of land in and around Polalu Valley, and that's uh, mainly because Shorty Kohala has been divesting of its land holdings in North Kohala since the since the mid 90s. You know, at its peak, they <clears throat> bought up about 13,000 acres of former Kohala Sugar Company lands, and so the company has about 1,800 acres remaining, most of it east of, of Pololu Valley. Uh, Bill Chantel, executive vice, vice president of Shorty Kohala, said in a statement that, you know, with the current um, real situation in the real estate market, it makes sense to market the property today to, to any responsible or individual or entity that's willing and able to make a reasonable offer. And so uh, Patau says the community is currently in discussions with conservation groups and nonprofits to explore the possibility of a, of a conservation land buy, right? It's something they can do with uh, county fund, open space funds or uh, through organizations like the Trust for Public Lands. It's uh, something we've seen and reported on on Kauai uh, with the purchase of the Alakoko fish pond, um, by a local stewardship group through this sort of, you know, a donation from somebody with enough money for it. And Chantel, we asked him, uh, Chantel did not say whether the company is open to a conservation buy in particular, but uh, from, you know, what he did say, it sounds like if you've got the money, they'll take it. And so uh, the other properties that they have put up for sale, I mean, they they just been pretty much kept um, undeveloped? Um, yes. So, well, there, there's been a lot of sales since the mid-90s, but the most recent um, uh, sort of talk or discussion about a potential uh, land swap was um, back in 2017, 2018, when Shirdi Kohala was going to donate some of the land it has near in and around Pololu to the state and uh, to allow them, you know, to to have more room to kind of alleviate that overcrowding at the lookout, but also develop. There are no bathrooms in the area. There's not enough parking, but uh, to allow for that to happen. And I think in exchange, um, the state Board of Land and Natural Resources agreed to, to the land swap. In exchange, they, the state was going to go in on a uh, subdivision request uh, with uh, Shorty Kohala 
for land just above in an area called Makanihio, above Pololu Valley. So they'd create about 15 parcels of land to be divvied up in a subdivision uh, if the county planning department does uh, accept that or approve that request. That's still uh, a poor debate. Nothing has been done to that effect, but that deal is still um, yeah, going through the process. Okay, so that conversation has started. The question is, what happens to this uh, uh, current offering of the 45, 45 acres? Right, right. And the other, uh, you know, 1,800 or so acres that the, the company is still trying to get rid of uh, in the area. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll uh, we're sure that the folks will be tracking this closely uh, just to see what happens. But uh, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo, Catherine. We have been talking to Kuvehi Hiraishi uh, on a proposed land sale that has been sparking public concern uh, in Pololu Valley on the Big Island. You can read her story at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mark Cafe, we hear about the UH Venture Competition put on by the Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship. We'll talk to Goal, the team that took first place in the competition, and find out how they plan to take their startup to the next level. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Finding a site for a new landfill on Kauai is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So what we have before us is the Kauai conundrum. <laughs> yeah, although with a C, not a K. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> uh, this story is from um, Brittany Light, who uh, reports on Kauai, uh, some of the I- other islands. We've expanded our coverage at Silver Beat uh, uh, to cover more than neighbor islands. So Brittany's story today is about the Keikaha landfill, right? That's on the west side of Kauai. And this has been going on for over a decade. What to do when that landfill reaches capacity? And right now... It's forecast to do so just five years from now. Uh, and initially, the county had come up with eight potential sites. But that has been whittled down considerably and for a number of factors. The bottom line is there is only one potential site remaining, and it's right across the highway from the Keikaha landfill, which, of course, is a concern for folks who live out there, even though there's a community benefits uh, package money that goes to nonprofits. Uh, it, it certainly is. Why us? Why? Why is it happening here? It seems unfair. And as you know, Catherine, these echo some of the very same arguments and the same dilemma, the same conundrum that we face here on Oahu, because our landfill out there at Waimanala Gulch on the west side, uh, similar, similar issues. Yeah, and you know we've known that this has, uh, you know, been a problem. And yet we can't seem to get closer to a solution. It's just it takes forever. 
It, it does. And it's not that Kauai County hasn't been trying. And I should say that Brittany did, in fact, interview Derek Kawakami, the, the, the Maui, excuse me, the Kauai mayor, who said, look, we don't have an option. We've got to come up with a solution. We've got to succeed. But some things happened to really knock the county off track. Um, first of all, the, the federal government, a couple of agencies said, you know, don't build that near their airport. There were actually three locations sited uh, around Lihue Airport. And the Fed said that's going to attract more birds and that's going to cause a problem with air traffic. Dangerous, right, to airplanes and then obviously passengers. So that happened. So right, that's from eight to five sites. And then the legislature just two years ago passed a bill and they said you cannot put a new landfill a half a mile from homes, right, where people live, schools, hospitals. And so there's that concern. And then I should just add, uh, you just cannot put a landfill in an area where there's a lot of heavy flooding. And as we all know, Kauai gets a lot of rain, particularly the west side, the north shore, Hanalei and so forth. And and so that's a restriction. And there's one other tsunami inundation zone. So mm-hmm. Kauai is not a big island, right? And there's only so many places. And, and that's what the, there are some other things that they're trying as well. But uh, this has narrowed down that list from eight to one. Right. So you can't do this. You can't do that. <laughs> and so <laughs> you, your options just uh, get the slimmer and slimmer. Right. Now, there there are some other things that Brittany mentions in her, her article. The, the county has tried to look at upping its uh, recycling um, program. I, I guess they don't have curbside for those listening no. in Kauai right now. That's right, Chad, no curbside. Uh, so there, there's that limitation. There is talk about trying to do more reclamation, right, of, of construction and demolition material, somehow to see if you can reuse that. Uh, there's uh, some of that's already happening. There's talk about shipping it, shipping it to Oahu, shipping it to the mainland. Uh-oh. So those are possibilities as well. There's even the possibility, and this actually also echoes the uh, Waimanaho Gulch uh, situation, to increase the current capacity at Keikaha. You can build a little higher, maybe extend it to 2030, but but it takes about 10 years to get a new landfill up and running. So you can see there's going to be an overlap. And Brittany even raises the question, can you imagine if everybody in Kauai suddenly had to let their garbage just sit there for a week or so, you know, uh, and well, we can all imagine what kind of disaster that, that might be. Yeah. Public health hazard. Pilau. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's been mentioned as well many times. But again, this this NIMBY argument, not in my backyard, and and and, and what can you do uh, to resolve these things? And and these things um, are go on forever, particularly with an island situation. We're, you know, we're, we're an island; we can't just drive to another state. And so, this is something that uh, Brittany. Uh, poses in detail. I should point out, for those who don't go to the, to the story, it's the lead story on our website today. There's some cool footage that we took with drones so that you can see where we're talking about. There's a nice map that pinpoints IDs where these potential sites are on Kauai. Of course, I'm talking to you on radio, yes. <laughs> but it's just a, a gentle plug to, if you want to see what it looks like, there's some good footage, good pictures, good maps uh, up on our website uh, regarding Brittany's story on Keikaha Landfill. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the same problem uh, in every community is facing too much trash, too much Opala, and our mm, space yeah. is limited, and and we've got to uh, find a way forward. It, it, you know, whether it's re- recycling or or uh, trying to make this work and do it uh, in a safe environmental manner, I guess. 
Uh, $64,000 question. But thank you so much, Chad. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Take care. All right. Okay. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Brittany Light's full story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Social media has made a significant impact on the way we communicate. We can share thoughts and moments with millions all over the world with a single post. But has it also made society more stupid? Well, contributing editor Neil Milner is here to discuss that in our bi-weekly segment that we call The Long View. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. This is a piece by Jonathan Haidt, who is a very influential social psychologist who's written some of the best stuff about how people develop political attitudes and has increasingly become a kind of public intellectual sort of a moderation. And speaking of 10 years of garbage, which <laughs> Civil Beat and Chad just did, this article is called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life, a Short Period, have been uni- have uh, been uniquely stupid. So this is not just about a general complaint about polarization and how that happened. Something happened in the last 10 years that makes people cross the board uniquely stupid. And as he says, it's not just a, a, a phase. Let's just very quickly look at what does he mean by by uniquely stupid. Uniquely stupid in this case means we've become like Babel. We no longer can talk to each other. We no longer share any kind of communities. And it's it's weaponized the frivolous. We've become frivolous. We've become hateful. The ways that we have to communicate, and I'll get back to what the villain is in all of this in a second, have sort of disappeared. Uh, we no longer, we, we have much more that we do now to reinforce confirmation bias, which is the single most important thing that keeps people from talking to one another. And so, in a sense, what's happened in the last 10 years comes down to this. Two things. First of all, most important is social media, Twitter and Facebook. When Facebook introduced the like thing and when Twitter introduced retreats, it set up all kinds of reinforcements for the worst kind of, of siloing, for the worst kind of, of speech communications on the basis of, of hatefulness. That's, that's one thing, and we'll come back to that in a second. The other thing is the degree to which political parties have changed and have become, in his sense, more stupid. Now, the, the conservative, it's easy to argue because you've watched Trump, you watch this kind of stuff, you, you hear about QAnon and all of that stuff. He says, and this is where he gets into trouble with the left, he says the Democrats have had their own problem on this kind of stuff. If you look at how, in effect, progressives on on social media simply dismiss people who are more moderate, also Democrats, as being racist and that sort of stuff, that that's that's the same kind of coarseness, the kinds of academic issues that have come up involving race where essentially institutions just kind of give up and, and back off. So we're in this kind of chaos of weaponizing the frivolous and giving what one engineer once called, a, a, uh, I think it's an uh, engineer for Twitter, said it's like weaponizing, it's like giving a four-year-old a loaded gun. So that's, that's where we stand, that essentially we're like Babel, we, we can't communicate, and that social media is 
particularly the the problem in this. And so what he's saying is that we, when social media like Facebook, and if you ever listen to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who can go on and on about this stuff, if social media was going to bring people together by offering them more means to cooperate, which in fact it did at first and continued the kind of evolution toward cooperation that we've had over time, what it's now become is quite the opposite. Um, and there doesn't seem to be an easy way to turn that around. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we're so fractured and so, oh, gosh, I don't know. You know, I, my husband has a saying, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But it, it's just it, because everything is so chopped up and so chop suey, it it's, it kind of highlights the differences and not the the – the things that bind us together, well, cooperation. We, we should be so lucky that it's chop suey. Chop suey, and I was just reading an article on the Choi Chalmain, so I know about this. Chop suey, there's a certain kind of blending. There's a lot of different things. Think about, think about chop suey with all these ingredients being separate, and if you eat one, the other one, get, uh, the one, another one gets you sick. That's an awful metaphor, but that's clearly what's going, what's going on here. And if, if you think it's just in politics, or even if you just think it's among your friends, you should read some of the stuff that goes on with serious social conservatives who write about theology. There's an enormous amount of hateful stuff that goes back and forth if you have differences on, this is among evangelicals, and if you read David French especially, who gets a lot of attacks on this, where you have this kind of coarseness, this kind of, that creates a kind of reluctance for moderate people to respond at all because they get attacked. It, he says it cuts through it cuts through society to an extraordinary degree of of, uh, of seriousness. Well, you know, uh, and it's not just here in our country, in these United States. This is global. I mean, you just have so many different countries and different entities that are putting in sure. crap. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, you can make a case that it contributed. Again, if you think about what Facebook was going to do and some of the early – revolutions in the Middle East, in quotes. Facebook was going to be the mobilizer, the way to have oppressed people mobilized. Well, what's also happened is that it's become a way for governments to polarize, to isolate, and so on, and to create propaganda. And as far as being international, of course it's international because these things go across borders. And that's where he's very concerned about um, about the future, about how to get out of this. When he says it's not just a phase, he means it. Literally, it's not just a phase. There are no ways to get out of this quickly. One of the reasons is that the increase in artificial intelligence, which the bad, the bad people, the, the Russia uses to influence its people, are going to be increasingly a part of political and social life here, that it's going to appear more on, you know, in various places. He's not all that optimistic about self-regulation. He thinks that there's certain things that can be done by, let's say, Facebook that don't involve censorship, that involve, that disincentivize um, reinforcing one side versus the other. He's, for example, he said that if you had a way so that if something was retweeted or something was liked uh, after a certain number of times, it would be, in order for you to to exit it, 
you'd have to re-enter it, those, those little things like that. He thinks that maybe the kinds of elections that we're talking about here, the, those, the new kind of primaries with, uh, where it isn't winner-take-all, at least initially. But I think it's important to read this piece because it is, well, because it's pretty articulate, because there's a lot of evidence, and because it's a way to try to get out of the blame game. Because um, what he says about conservative politics, what he says about others, and what he says about people who identify themselves as true conservatives or true liberals tend to be a very small number, tend to be relatively wealthy compared to the rest of the population, and white. So you, so one of the points he's trying to make is that there is a middle out there. It's it's not a middle that you're going to get to by compromise or by uh, going across the aisle, all those things you're going to hear a lot of in 2024. There is a middle out there that is increasingly cut off from the kinds of hateful um, and exaggerated communications that the true believers on each side give. I wish I had one of those um pencils that detect lead, you know, how do you detect disinformation, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can just Well, I mean, first of all, you yeah. have to believe that there's, you know, it isn't even neutral anymore. We don't, we don't share the kinds of rules of evidence anymore that used to be there. He talks about Jonathan Rouse stuff in there, about there used to be shared ways of evaluating evidence based somewhat on the scientific method that have kind of also gone by the board. And so you don't even have those shared stories anymore about evidence. Okay. Food for thought, not chop suey, but, <laughs> but yeah. No. It's lunchtime. It's lunchtime. Okay, all right. Thanks so much. You're Neil. welcome, Catherine. Take care. All right. That was our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joining us for our reoccurring segment, The Long View. Look for links on our website later today. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of uh, Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a woodpecker, the uh, Kia Polao. Akia Polao are large, bright yellow honeycreepers that act like woodpeckers. They use their strong lower bill to peck holes in the branches of trees. Then they use their long, curved upper bill to pry out the tasty insect larvae. There are less than 2,000 of these birds left, mainly because of habitat loss and mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. And nowadays, their song can only be heard in high-elevation koa forests on the Big Island, where it's too cold for mosquitoes. In addition to controlling mosquitoes, planting koa forests would be a great way to increase populations of this very rare and important species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at 
friendsofhakalauforest.org. Today's backyard quiz, backyard quiz, we asked you how the nests of the western yellow jacket in the islands differ from those found in North America. The wasp name refers to the common yellow and black band on the insect's tail or abdomen. Although they primarily feed on nectar, they've also been referred to as meat bees, as they're known to crash picnics and barbecues in search of protein. Colonies are typically started by a single queen called the foundress and are typically about the size of a basketball. In areas with four climate seasons, nest populations usually number in the thousands and are active in the spring and then become dormant and, and die, they die off in the winter. But in Hawaii's mild climate, colonies can persist for years, growing in number and size and often possess multiple egg-laying queens. One colony on Maui was reported to have as many as 6,000 individual wasps, or 600,000 individual wasps. It's the larger size of yellow jacket nests in Hawaii that makes them different from ones found elsewhere, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And our winner today is David of Lanai City, who says he's fascinated by wasps and other insects. Okay, just be careful, David. Don't get stung. Do you have an idea for a backyard quiz? Or write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our next story is about a poet whose new book, Prevailing Winds, is just out this week. Joseph Stanton is a University of Hawaii art history professor whose talents include writing prose. His book includes a section on poems about birds, including this one, The Last O'o. The Last Kauai O'o. In 1983, in the highest branch of a tree in a deeply forested place, a male O'o called and called to his mate, ringing tones echoing, echoing, far and far, a quarter mile at least, his yearning bell tolling, the remains of wild Kauai. In the pauses between the calling, he was gathering, building the nest his mate would need, building it stronger, building it better, building towards her return. At least once every year, he was seen to try his song, his cry eerie, penetrating. In 1987, his song soared one last time, and then arrived the silence, and he was known to be, at last, the last of his kind. I hear that poem, and I think of where I grew up in Guam, and we hardly have any native birds left, you know. And I, I know a, about that, yes. I had a yeah. friend who, who studied birds, and, and his job was to go out in the forest and listen for birds. And he said, it's just really eerie. You go out there and you don't hear anything. Because of the brown tree snakes. Yes, but it, it makes me think of, yeah, this little bird, if he's the last one on Kauai. Yes, and I have a whole sequence here on the uh, honeycreeper birds. He's not a honeycreeper, but the honeycreepers are, um, of course, many of them are already extinct. A few of them are in, in, you know, endangered, but most are extinct. 
and I have a sequence of poems on those. But I think the uh, the O'O poem is the most singular, most striking for people. This poem is included in your book, in your latest book, Prevailing Winds. But what got yes. you started writing poems about birds? Ode to, Ode to Our Birds, I guess. Well, I, I actually uh, have, you know, for a long time loved the natural world. I mean, since I was a child, of course, I, you know, was very interested in things like that. So as I started to write poetry again as an adult, I was writing about primarily two things. I was writing about art. I'm an art historian by profession, and I found that to be interesting. And then also I was just very interested in the natural world. And so I've written a lot of poems about birds, trees, other things. I also decided to start writing about baseball because I have been writing since the 1970s, was writing about small keyed time. And for me, small keyed time had nothing to do with, you know, the whole world of Hawaii because I wasn't here at that time. But uh, my world was wrapped up in baseball. So I ended up writing a lot of poems on baseball as well. So those are kind of, you know, those things, art, nature, uh, in which birds frequently star, and then uh, and then baseball. Of course, within the art category, there's lots of different things. There's not just, uh, you know, the visual art, I mean, in terms of painting, but there's also movies. I'm a big movie guy. I love movies. And so those are all things that are, are of interest to me. I'm also interested in children's picture books, and I did a whole book on that subject of children's picture books. So, you know, it just things like, like wherever the visual and the literary come together is an area of high interest to me. You have a book uh, entitled A Field Guide to the Wildlife of Suburban Oahu. The reason why I call it Suburban Oahu is because I thought, well, the wildlife that's really important and interesting and in- intimate to us are the uh, birds that, you know, and, and insects and plants and so forth that we see in everyday life. I, I was a little bit tired of the way we had a lot of poets coming to Hawaii, you know, Robert Bly or what other famous poets. They're writing about lava tubes or, you know, um, you know, volcanoes or things that to them were exotic. But I'm thinking, well, for those of us who live in Hawaii, we're inter- you know, we every day notice things like centipedes, uh, termites, geckos, you know, as well as the various birds and trees and things. So I thought. What's important about nature is not just, you know, the inspiring grandeur of certain natural things, but just the everyday things that are present to us as we live our lives. And, of course, we're part of that. So in Field Guide to the Wildlife has actually quite a few people poems, including members of my family, because <laughs> we're all creatures, too, right? So, and, and, and it includes, what, cockroaches of the neighborhood? <laughs> Actually, I never did do. There were several people that had done cockroach poems at the time that I was working on this, and I thought, ah, I don't feel like it. Just seemed too easy, you know, to do cockroaches. But uh, so the sections in the field guide book are island weather, and then wildlife of suburban Oahu, which has a lot of particular creatures, and then intertwined on the island, which has a lot to do with the way people of different backgrounds are living together in Hawaii. And that's a lot of the people poems are in that section. But, you know, so it's it's kind of a, and so I wasn't so much out in the woods, although I was sometimes, but I was kind of looking around me, you know, f- feeding the birds in the parking lot off my paper plate, you know, as much as being out in the uh, wilderness. 
You also had that book entitled Cardinal Points, Poems on St. Louis Cardinals Baseball. So it's not the cardinal, the, the red bird that we know, uh, although that is their mascot. But yeah, right. so, so what is it about baseball that grabbed you? Part of it was that I was teaching here at UH. I just happened to volunteer for a course called Sports in America. And uh, I shaped that course to my own interest. And because I was doing so much work preparing for that class, I thought, I, I need to find something I want to write about that relates to that class. And I thought, hey, I'm going to write about baseball. And I, I did some you know, writings about baseball history. But I also... Uh, you know, became thinking, because I was starting to write a lot of poetry at that point, I thought, and, and like I mentioned, I mean, a, a lot of people in Hawaii, you know, the local writing community of which I was very much a part, was writing about, you know, their childhood, you know, small kid time. And I thought, well, small kid time for me was baseball. And so I, I thought back to the Cardinals. I grew up in St. Louis. And so I started writing the poems, and I was particularly enthused about the 1964 Cardinals, uh, that team came back from being like 10 games out of first place to actually win the pennant and then the World Series. And so I was enthralled by that in my youth. I thought that was the wonderful. And so I wrote a whole sequence of poems based primarily on that team, as well as a few older players. And I submitted it to a very prominent publisher of baseball-related matters, and they they turned it down. I said, well, why are you turning this down? That, you know, this is right up, you know, you're uh, right in your wheelhouse, so to speak. And they said, well, actually, you know, we need a much larger book. Your, your, your sequence is too short. And so I thought, wow, you know, somebody's actually asking me to write more poems and then it'll <laughs> become more attractive to a publisher. So I, I went back and I wrote poems basically for er every era of the Cardinals from the late 19th century uh, through, at that time, the present, which was the early 2000s. And so that was how I ended up, you know, writing that book. And basically, I organized it according to those time periods. I got photographs from the Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, that were really beautiful, interesting photographs of the various players in the various eras. So each, you know, every so often you encounter one of these uh, photographs as as you move through the book. So, you know, it's a kind of um, a fun project that uh, grew uh, by leaps and bounds, so to speak, from the different kinds of, uh, you know, impulses I had on it. And um, so it became a big part of me. And, and so I've eventually established this relationship with the Hall of Fame where I, I go there every year or two and give a uh, either a lecture or a poetry reading, either a research paper or I present a uh, sequence of poems. So it, it became more and more a part of my life uh, that I would do baseball-related things, both prose and poetry, as sort of one of the things I did. And I love also that, that uh, you uh, celebrate uh, um, notable authors. Uh, Edward Gorey is one of my favorite, uh, right. and uh, Maurice Sendak. So uh, talk about that. Uh, I was the... Uh, writer of the catalog for the Edward Gorey exhibit we have in, had in Hawaii. And we have one of the best collections of Edward Gorey works in Hawaii because we had a major collector who lived here and donated it to Hamilton Library at UH. And so that became one of the strengths of Hawaii's uh, you know, research collection there. And so we did a wonderful uh, exhibition, and I, I wrote the catalog for that. 
and of course, I, I also went out to um, to Cape Cod, where Edward Gorey's house was, and we studied there and looked at his stuff, you know, there as well as in New York and so forth. So I, I had a very intense experience there. Uh, people like Maury Sindak, we have a, a conference in Hawaii every other year. It's called the Biennial Conference on Literature and Hawaii's Children. Because I'm interested, as I said, in the intersection of images and words, pictures and stories, all that kind of stuff, I early became involved right at the very start of that children's literature conference, particularly focusing on picture books. And so for each of you know my presentations for that conference, I wrote an essay, which then I would expand. And then it became one of my scholarly areas. I submitted these uh, to various prominent uh, scholarly journals that were interested or at least tolerant of children's literature. So, you know, I wrote about Margaret Wise Brown. I'm an authority on Goodnight Moon. I'll have you know. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> I love that book. Actually, we had a conference once on the Big Island, a version of our conference, and I started reciting Goodnight Moon, and everybody in the room, pretty much, the parents and the children, all started reciting it along with me which shows you how pervasive that particular work is. I wrote about Arnold Lobel, you know, the frog and toad stuff. Um, also uh, Donald Hall's book, Ox Card Man. And for Maury Sendak, I wrote about uh, his New York City uh, activities. Basically, he grew up in Brooklyn and dreamed about Manhattan. So uh, In the Night Kitchen is my favorite uh, Sendak thing, and that's the kind of punchline of my article. There I also wrote about a guy named William Joyce, and uh, a rather surrealistic artist called uh, Chris Van Allsburg. He did really interesting picture books. So do you have uh, a, uh, a a picture book in the works? Basically, I'm I'm a scholar of this. In other words, people will say, well, oh, you're, you write all this stuff about, about painting. Are you a painter? Well, no, I'm, I'm a scholar. And uh, being a scholar is plenty of work. And we need scholars as well as artists. It just happens that in the area of poetry, I'm an artist in that area as well as a scholar. We have been hearing from poet and scholar Joseph Stanton, whose new book, Prevailing Winds, was just released this week. We should note that his dance card is filling up fast. He will be featured at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival later this year. Stanton will also be presenting a workshop at the Honolulu Museum of Art coming up in August. And this summer he'll be appearing in the uh, Cooperstown reading uh uh, reading his baseball poetry, uh, and he will also be featured in the Edward Hopper House Museum, which is right on the Hudson River in Nyack, New York. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, who you gonna call? We hear about a new website, cocoonneeded.org, that aims to give you answers. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.